welcome to Northern Kentucky University's Impromptu Discussions About History. I am your moderator, Professor Jennifer Morris. I teach at Mount St. Joseph University, and I'm here with my cohort of graduate students in the program who are all going to introduce themselves next. Hi, I'm Alicia Burnett. Hello, I'm Christopher Hartmeyer. Hello, I'm Jamie Thompson. Hello, I'm Jennifer Roberts. Hi, I'm Brooke Darty. Okay, good. All right. Today's impromptu discussion uh, is going to cover the work that this group has been doing on New Richmond, Ohio, and its rich history, uh, both as a town on the Ohio River. Um, so we have we have the whole river town vibe going on. Um, it's a place that clearly was a hotbed for abolition, and there are all kinds of things that went on in that very wonderful collaborative community. Um, so what I'd like to do today is talk, each, each of us is going to talk about one of the things that we've been focused on with regard to our research. And so, um, Jamie, I'd like you to get us started off and talk a little bit about what you've been doing. Jamie's been doing a lot of genealogical work um, and actually working with some of the residents in New Richmond. And so her work has been wonderfully interesting. Okay, so um, this has been a impactful, impactful experience for me. Um, for the semester because I never experienced our oral history before working with the um, descendants from New Richmond. And to me, it brings me another light of why is it important to do oral histories, to collect these information from um, African Americans in your local um, area as well. Um, so get a brief um, history on my research of the project. I've been working with Ms. Mary Allen. She is descendant of Howell Boone, who was the treasurer of this great organization back in the mid-1800s called the Union Association for the Advancement of Color Men of New Richmond. Now, this group um, started back in the summer of 1857. So this is prior to the NAACP, which to me is very complex on why of uh, this group hasn't got enough recognition as it is. And going back to the history of America, they don't recognize a lot of great significant details about African American history unless it has something to do with their objective. Um, but this is why the key importance of oral history should be accepting because there's so much in history, even the local um, level that we should be, you know, acknowledging and accepting and understanding because this will make us learn from mistakes in the past to grow better. Plus, you've had such a wonderful relationship with the person you've been working with, and she's really sort of helped you feel great about the work that you're doing, right? Yes, absolutely. So she's also a genealogist expert as well, and she was giving me great detail on like what to look for. If you want to do your own ancestry, and believe it or not, she was saying that anybody can do this. Um, it's always the will of finding your confidence and also just the curiosity that you have an interest about your history. And unfortunately, um, going back to 1860 or before 1860, actually, um, African slaves were not allowed to read or write. Um, so we all we had was to pass down history um, orally to each other. And, right. and, and I want to interject, too, that 
that's one of the other really interesting things about New Richmond is, is that in 1839, um, a person that I'm really interested in, Priscilla Parker and her husband Daniel, co-founded the Claremont Academy, and they actually admitted students of all races and all genders. And so it was really wonderful that even though legally African Americans were denied education, yeah. Parkers living in New Richmond, right, with with all these other people, were taking a risk, um, and they were they were they were they were educating people who went on to be really wonderful leaders in their community, as as have their descendants. Um, so let's talk a little bit, too, about some of the other people who lived in New Richmond. Um, what, uh, Brooke, can you tell us a little bit about the person that you've been researching? Yeah, of course. So I've been looking into Mary Lumpkin, um, and that takes us actually to Virginia first um, before she moves to New Richmond. Um, essentially, Mary Lumpkin, she was born in 1832, um, around 1832, and in about 1840, she was purchased uh, by Robert Lumpkin. Robert Lumpkin, um, at the time, he was a slave trader. And then in 1844 was when he purchased um, a plot of land and he built a jail on that land. So after Robert Lumpkin built the jail in 1844, um, he added on a kitchen and then a hotel that was meant for slave traders. There's also an auction house on that land. Um, so it would be around that time of 1844 that Mary Lumpkin actually would have her first um, child at age 13. Um, with? So, with Robert Lumpkin, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So Robert Lumpkin and her, their dynamic wasn't very, you know, it wasn't um, shocking. A lot of that, you know, you have the slave enslaver, um, unfortunately, taking on a very young victim. Um, and that was the dynamic between Robert and Mary. And if you actually, if any of you who are listening have actually looked at a novel called The Yellow Wife, this is actually a, a similar story uh, of a woman who was enslaved who became the mistress slash wife, right, of a slave trader who also ran a, a similar institution. Uh, and the story is really compelling in terms of, you know, how she retained her own power, the kinds of threats that she faced. And so Mary Lumpkin's story is, is indeed not, you know, it's not unique. Like, this happened a lot. Right, yep. And um, unlike other slaves, Mary was um, described as fair, and she was able to be um, white passing, essentially. Um, so going back to kind of her lineage, um, it's not sure whether her mother was an enslaved woman um, who had, a, you know, who um, had relations, in quotations, um, with her enslaver, or maybe it was an enslaved man, and then... Um, her mother was also an enslaved woman, um, but her mother could have been from a white man and an uh, enslaved woman. Yeah, these are the stories that all, and, and as you listen to all of us talk about this, one of the things that we will all tell you, and, it, and this is particularly acute when we talk about the history of African Americans in the United States, but many other demographics in the United States, where you really have to look between the spaces to find people. Um, and it's the same thing when we talk about the LGBT community and all kinds of things like that. So what what all of us like to do is really scratch those places and see what we can find. Um, so tell us a little bit more about Mary and how she ends up in New Richmond. Yeah, of course. So um, after the end of the Civil War, Robert Lumpkin dies. Um, he actually leaves everything to Mary Lumpkin. Um, in his will, he states that as long as she doesn't marry, um, she's able to hold keep control of the properties 
um, and whatever little money Robert has. Unfortunately, after the Civil War, the jail, the slave jail, um, goes out of business, and Robert doesn't have much money. But Mary takes what she has, and she moves to um, New Orleans, and she stays there for about two years. She has a very close friend that she met when she was younger. Um, in about 1872, she moves to New Richmond. Um, and in New Richmond, Mary, it's believed that maybe she was following a soldier um, who is, and if you look at the um, census, it's she's labeled as a widow um, to this unnamed soldier. Um, so it's not sure if she's married or not, or she married the soldier or not, um, but she was listed as a widow to an, uh, an army soldier. Um, but Mary, her mark on history, not only, you know, she's 13 years old, she has her first child at 13. Um, she goes on to have seven more, five survive to adulthood. Um, but after the Civil War, Mary um, runs into this pastor, um, Nathaniel. Um, Colvin. Or Culver, excuse me, Nathaniel Culver, excuse me. Um, so she runs into him, and um, he they essentially strike up a relationship, um, a friendship, and he takes what's left of the jail and builds that into what is going to be called the Culver Institute, later named the Richmond Institute. And through this institute, what the outcome is, is one of the oldest um, historically black colleges and universities. Um, it's called the Virginia Union University. Um, it's a divinity school, but it also taught a lot of black um, men and a little bit of women, they allowed women in there, um, you know, geography, history, math, things that you would normally learn in a university. And one of the things that I think that all of us would agree we're finding as we do this research is the people that we've found who ended up in this little river, river Ohio River town were such rebels in so many ways. Um, and they did things that made extraordinary differences in other people's lives, right? By... Um, you know, just settling in New Richmond, being part of the community, achieving educations that were denied them. Um, they have extraordinary courage, right? And so um, let's talk, too, a little bit about Louisa Piquet, or as we may call her, Louisa Piquet. Um, so, Chris, tell us what you know about her. So, for, we actually know a great deal about Louisa Piquet. So, we roughly know that she was born in either 1829 or 1830 in Lexington County, South Carolina, to a slave woman named Elizabeth Ramsey, and her father was the plantation owner, uh, a James Hunter Randolph. And very soon after her birth, about two months, the mother and daughter were sent to Georgia to be sold off at another uh, slave auction, and they were sold to a David R. Cook in Jasper County, Georgia. The Mr. Cook was a bit of a drunkard and a gambling man, so he racked up a significant amount of debt, and he tried to flee his creditors by moving his entire family, along with a few of the slaves and the mother-daughter, to Mobile, Alabama. But 
eventually he was arrested by the sheriff and creditors caught up. So all of his assets, including the slaves, went up for auction again in Georgia. So Louise's mother, Elizabeth, also uh, at this point had a, a baby boy named uh, Henry. And they were put up for auction first. And they were sold to a Mr. Horton. And then Louisa was eventually put up for auction. And she was sold to John Williams. And she went to New Orleans to live as his housekeeper. So she lived with Mr. Williams for about six, seven years. And during that time, they it's not exactly clear about their relationship, but she had four children from him. Two of them died in infancy. And when he eventually died, he freed her and actually generously left all of the furniture in the house to her. Mr. Williams' brother took that furniture and sold it secondhand, and half of the money went to her. On his deathbed, Mr. Williams made her promise that she would move to New York. She wasn't able to move to New York. She kind of bounced from one African-American community up to Mississippi, up to Cincinnati. That's when her money ran out, and so she stayed in Cincinnati. And Jennifer, you've been working on Louisa also, so um, you want to pick her story up a little bit there, and the yeah. two of you can continue to tell us about her amazing story. Yeah, so um, when she made it to Cincinnati, she actually met uh, who became her husband, Henry Paquette. Um, he, they went on to have two children together. Um, he already had one child um, from a previous relationship with another slave woman. Um, they, Louisa wasn't really satisfied, though, after she got freed um, when she moved to Cincinnati because she still was thinking about her mother and her brother um, who were uh, still separated from her. Now, how did, how did, did she actually know where her mother and brother were at the time? Um, she had spent a really long time trying to figure it out. Um, she spent over 10 years um, trying to discover that, and she actually overheard from one gentleman uh, who was coming in that uh, they were living with Mr. Horton in Texas. Okay, yeah, because Chris is, and just so you, so for our listeners, Chris is nodding his head vigorously. Yeah. But she did actually know where her mother and her brother were. Yeah, yeah. she did. Um, and so she spent over 10 years raising those funds um, from anti-slavery campaigner uh, Levi Coffin, um, residents of Queen City, Henry, even Henry's employer tried to pitch in a little bit, um, different neighboring towns that Louisa visited. Um, she did a lot of traveling around to, to get those funds. Um, and then she finally goes to New York, which is ironic considering what we were talking about earlier, but she finally right. makes it to New York City in Buffalo, um, and she meets Hiram Madison, who's a Methodist minister and abolitionist. Um, so he decides that he's going to help her write her narrative, which is the Octoroon, um, and they actually end up raising funds from it. She basically just in that tells her entire story about like what happened to her and her mother, her time with Mr. Cook, Mr. Williams, um, and how she was treated, and daily slave life is really gives a good perspective on that. 
Um, That's a really famous story, actually. Um, it and it's actually what what I found. I mean, that was something that when I was actually in graduate school, it was the first time I actually was introduced to it. Kind of crazy. It was in the '90s, but I have. It's been such an important thing in terms of like teaching students about history and those coalitions that people form, right? Like he wanted to tell a story about enslavement. She needed money to help, you know, free her her relatives. And it's these it's these relationships that are so so important that we're that we're that we see everywhere in New Richmond, Ohio. This is the crazy thing. It's such a wonderful place to demonstrate that. So tell us the end of the story, you two. Yeah. Well, she actually, she was trying to free both her brother and her mother, but um, she actually ended up only being able to afford getting her mother, um, which is far too expensive. Um, but they finally do. Um, they wrote several letters back and forth to each other, and Mr. Horton was like, oh, I'll sell her for 1000 And then he was like, oh, maybe I'll sell her for 900 So she, um, she finally got the funds to do that. Um, Elizabeth returns with her to Cincinnati. Um, and then around that time uh, is when uh, the firing on Fort Sumter happens during the Civil War. Henry um, gets drafted during that. Um, but he's only there for about a year before he becomes disabled from a hernia. Um, and so he's discharged. And um, they quickly discover that he's unable to really do any of the work there um, anymore, like back in Cincinnati um, with his disability and just the way things were. And so they. Uh, decide that they're going to move to New Richmond, Ohio, which is how they get there. Um, and that's in 1867. Um, and what's nice about New Richmond at that point is that <clears throat> the Parker Academy begins in 1839. And so there is, and, and with all the other, the freed black residents that are there, there's already a thriving community. And I think that's what we're really finding all along that corridor is, is that there are so many, it, it, there's so many places that are inclusive, welcoming, right? And where people can put down roots and can make homes. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's nice to know that, you know, they have, they have a place to go. Um, so what's, so, so Chris, how does this end? How does her story end? So this is kind of when her story gets a bit fuzzy, but we do have, some idea at what happens uh, to her in New Richmond because she is the um, she is literate and and right so but her husband Henry cannot so she's the one who is writing the letters and um, signing as witness and also just actually forging his name sometimes um, so they pretty much lived a quiet life. I know Henry worked briefly at the steamboat uh, section in the town, but they had a huge struggle just trying to uh, buy or get the pension because Henry did serve, but it wasn't clear on his disability, so they kept on Louisa was actually the one writing and sending the letters to uh, try and get his pension. And after about 15 years, they were able to uh, get his pension, but he kind of shortly died after that. But she was then successfully able to get a widow's, widow pension, and she lived off that for a few years before she died in 1896. Wow. Okay, so we're, now this is these stories are so 
interestingly connected in so many ways because we also have stories about soldiers in New Richmond who are buried in New Richmond. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, definitely. So we know that we have a ton of um, African-American soldiers that are buried currently in this Marion Cemetery, but there's five that I've recently came across that all served and enlisted in the same company, and that would be the 27th United States Color Troops Regiment, Company K. And these these men were actually a part of the last soldiers to enlist in this regiment, and that was at the end of 1864 in August. So this this company, well, this unit started in January of 1864. So they enlisted not even a year later and ended up being the last ones to do so. These men all enlisted from the ages of 18 to 20 years old. And while only Silas was born in Ohio, all these men once fought at home and still do. So men who lived in New Richmond attended the Claremont Academy and went on to serve with distinction in the military during the Civil War. And so what what I would like to ask you all at this point is how how do you feel about the things that you know about New Richmond, Ohio? Was it, was it a town that you ever anticipated would have this much history to tell? Well, I was born and raised in Cincinnati and from my first impression, I thought New Richmond was just like a small town, but going through their history especially in the 1800s up to like the mid 1950s um they had very impactful like history sections where they worked with Cincinnati it was a competition with Cincinnati at some point they had a great um transportation system i mean business was booming around those times and it was quite diverse there too um which currently now today is not as much but we are encouraging um, inclusivity and New Richmond. Um, there is a New Richmond um, committee that Miss Mary Allen is a council member of, and she is a big advocate on promoting the local community and understanding the educational values in that area as well. And what do we think as a group, as a group of public historians, aspiring and practicing, because we're doing both, what do we think is the value of pulling together this narrative about New Richmond and telling people about it and letting them know that. I would like to say that I feel like it's really impactful and important, um, not only just to figure out what happened before, but to transform today's history and our understanding of what that is, um, of course, reparations, and just different things like that that will this history, uncovering this history, not only in New Richmond, but overall, will connect and lead us to those differences. Yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is a place where unlikely people seem to have come together and done pretty extraordinary things. Um, I'm, I'm always still so fascinated by this woman who leaves her home in what's today Maine, travels all the way to southwest Ohio by herself, uh, meets a guy, marries him. He's an itinerant minister. And they have eight children of their own. And then they're not real okay with the level of education that's available for their children in the area. So they start a school. And not only did they want to educate their own children, they want to educate everybody else's children as well. And to them, it doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter if they're boys. It doesn't matter if they're girls. They're welcome in the school. 
and they do they have a rigorous curriculum and that's that's such a pivotal thing because all of these other things in new richmond you know people are drawn there people are coming from virginia people are coming you know they they come from all different places be in this little river community um, so there has to be something really special about it. And I think that the longer we work on this narrative about New Richmond, the more richness we're going to find. Everybody feel that way? Yes. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I definitely believe that um, local history should have recognition because when you exclude um, local history, you're excluding like the other side of history that happened to people. And sometimes when it's unheard, things repeat, and that shouldn't happen. When heroes come from everywhere, right? People that we want to emulate, people that inspire us, come from every place. You know, they don't just come from big, big cities or big colleges or, you know, they, they don't. They come from everywhere. And uh, there's actually a gentleman who lives in New Richmond today. His name is Mr. Hale. He's 90 years old. He has a rich memory of growing up in New Richmond. He's lived there his entire life. He's had an extraordinary life. And... It was such a pleasure to meet him and talk to him about what it was like to be in New Richmond for almost the last century. So, you know, and this is a person who is incredibly inspiring. Um, so it's those kinds of people that, it, and it'll be great to be able to weave him into this overall narrative of New Richmond as, as we continue to find out what it's all about. What else do we want to tell our listeners today? How much have you enjoyed this? I think it was a great learning process and just getting to sit down and do this research and then reflect on it with the rest of the class and just talk about it and think about it while we're doing this has just already been very impactful. I think it's definitely helped hone my research skills, um, looking at deeds, looking, um, you know, going to libraries, um, looking in databases that I really didn't do when I was an undergrad. Um, so I feel like I've become a better researcher um, throughout this project. And anyone listening, if you want somebody who's going to find an answer for you, regardless of the obstacles, hire a historian. We are amazing at <laughs> doing research. Uh, there's hardly anything we can't find. Um, and we know where to look because we look in all kinds of places for what we need to find. And also go to your local libraries. I mean, you never know what resources that you can find. I mean, Google is one way to help out, but like, you know, not every document that's been recorded in history is going to be on the internet. True and I learned that through New Richmond, you have to go to the Claremont counties, you have to go to their public libraries, you have to talk to their local historians to get further this research that we found. Yeah, because history is such a melding of so many different things. And I think that's what makes history, for me, that's why I'm so passionate about it. You get, it's really about people, right? It's about all of us. And the more we learn about ourselves, better off we are. Uh, I just love it. And I know all of you do too, because I love working with all of you and doing these projects together. So yeah, it's been, it's been a great run doing this project and we are not anywhere near finished with it. We are just getting started. Um, so anybody want to make any closing, have anybody have any closing thoughts that you want to share? I'm just excited to move forward with this project with all of you. I just wanted to say, um, I think this project really showed like how hard the researching process really is when it comes to researching um, African slaves because I think that a lot of it's been erased and I think that 
it's because it's so hard to find things it's easy to let that history slip through the cracks and it takes somebody to just with the grit to just really continue and try to find those gems I think really helps and telling these stories is really significant to moving forward and um, learning from the past yeah there are definitely histories that um and and we have to think of that's a really excellent point that we have to think a lot about histories in their frameworks it's easy to find newspaper articles about famous people and people who have wealth or people who don't do something very heroic in a war it's very easy because and a lot of them kept journals and a lot of them were interviewed um, there's a lot about them, but everybody, you know, everybody has a story to tell. And so when we're looking for these things, it's, it's crazy how, you know, we find one little thread and we follow it. And then we find another little piece and we may not find all the pieces, but the story's there. And it's so cool when that comes together, right? Like making the perfect souffle and it comes out of the oven and it doesn't fall flat the minute you put it on the counter. So yeah, there's just so much fun to doing this, and and you know there's a lot of passion among this group, and among the entire Masters in Public History program here at NKU. Lots of wonderful people who do great things here. Well, thank you all very much for listening to our impromptu discussion about history, and we hope you will tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.